I've emptied my pockets so I won't be jingling my keys during class. Are we recording? All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Join me in Philippians chapter 4 as we return back to Yodia and Syneche and uh, true companion and Clement and a hall of fame of uh, heroes here that, uh, can you imagine, they were all in one Bible church, in Philippi Bible Church, these, uh, these tremendous heroes. And so we're looking at them and two of them are having a hard time getting along and uh, they need to cut that out. And uh, he's asking for Sisygos, uh, the true companion, to help them in that regard, to apply the doctrine that uh, Paul has been giving them, and uh, and then we'll see what happens because uh, the book of Pro- uh, the book of uh, Philippians comes to a close here after chapter four, and we don't know if they listened or not, if it worked out or not, or if they lived happily ever after, or what happened after the end of uh, Philippians. So uh, we just see it for what it is and and proceed beyond that. Before we get started tonight, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together tonight. We call upon Your faithfulness to hedge us about and protect us, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and cause trouble or stop what we're doing. Father, uh, bless the ministry of your word as it goes forth. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, I did get a couple of email questions during the week, but I'm not going to answer them because uh, they were about uh, things that we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about the book of life, uh, Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so I got a question all the way from Australia about the Book of Life, and uh, we're going to uh, we'll handle that in the class tonight. So, uh, do we have other questions? Is the microphone ready to go? Microphone's ready, and so I think we got enough people here. We can take three questions from each person, and uh, still have some time left over. So, anything at all? Going once, going twice. How many angels can? Fit on the head of a pit. Uh, did you have a question, Dad? <laughs> yeah, let that go. Let that go. We won't go there tonight. I did a lot of reading in that chapter tonight, though, but we, we can let that go. All right. Well, then, let's just jump on it. How about that? Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syneche. They get separate urgings. He doesn't lump them together in the same urging. Yodia gets an urging, Syneche gets an urging. To live in harmony in the Lord, to think the same way, to have this thinking in themselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Indeed, true companion, or indeed, truly named Syzygos, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, so that's what we're going to deal with here tonight with this book of life. This is point three in the outline. Two women in Philippi are urged to reconcile, and they need help doing so. 
He doesn't just leave it with verse 2 where I urge you to think the same thing. I urge you to reconcile. I urge you to live in harmony. He actually follows up the urging with the call for Syzygos, the call for a true companion to help them with this. That just receiving the exhortation won't be sufficient. That uh, And we find similar things in our application as well. We know what the, the Word of God says. We know what the doctrine is. We know what the right thing is to do. We just have this carnality issue that doesn't want to do what needs to happen. <laughs> and so when a brother comes alongside, when a sister comes alongside, when someone loves us enough to, to come alongside and say, hey, you know what the right thing is to do. Now let me help pray with you and help, help make this happen. That's what it takes sometimes. And that's what we see here with respect to this. And so uh, as far as success is concerned, we don't know much about her except for this. Uh, she does not appear. Her name is Yodia, which means success. And uh, this is the only verse of the Bible where she appears, so we can uh, speculate or we can just leave it at that. Likewise with Syneche, this is the only verse in the Bible where Syneche appears. Um, It is a feminine name and uh, there are equivalent masculine names in terms of Tychicus and Eutychus and Fortunatus, but none of that applies to Syneche at all. And so we, uh, again, we could speculate or we can proceed and take it from there. I find it interesting though that we do know these names. And that's uh, unusual because with other you know, problem issues like the man of incest, for example, we don't know his name, or, uh, or other troublemakers, we don't know their names. But here we know their names. And so when we get to heaven, we're going to meet Eodia. We're going to meet Syneche. And we're going to go, oh, are you that Eodia? And she'll say, yes, that was me. And, uh, but here's the thing though. Um, the fact that we know those names is very noteworthy and it's, it stands out compared to other folks that, uh, that are left anonymous. And then true companion, like I, I fail, I just, there's no way I can comprehend why would Iodia and Syneche be called out by name and why would true companion be left anonymous? That is just upside down and backwards as far as what would normally be expected. And so I take this as a proper name which we talk about in terms of Zizigus, the truly named Zizigus, S-Y-Z-Y-G-O-S, Zizigus. And that would be a great Scrabble word because the Z and the Ys would be a lot of points. But it's uh, you don't use proper names in Scrabble anyway. So Zizigus is the name for a um, companion, uh, somebody that yokes animals together. This would be a yoker, somebody that applies the yoke, the Zugas, all right? And so he is truly named. Since his name is uh, is Yoker, and Paul wants him to yoke these two women together until they get along, you know, uh, can you imagine what a punishment? Just like handcuffing two people that can't get along and saying, "All right, the handcuffs don't come off until uh, <laughs> until you patch things up and you start acting well, right?" And then uh, and then we'll take the handcuffs off. So the truly named Zizigus, and uh, the more I look at it, the more I get convinced that that's the case. So we have Yodia, we have Syneche, we have Zizigus, we have Clement, and the rest. The rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, uh, Origen and some other folks tried to make um, Clement the same as uh, the Clement of Rome, and uh, which really we, we can't do. It's kind of awkward to do that. Uh, that. Not only the distance involved between Philippi and Rome, I guess that's overcomable, but if Clement is uh, the older man that he's uh, thought of here in this context, then how much older is he going to be 40 years from now? That It just seems to not fit in the writing of 1 uh, Clement in, uh, in 95 AD, uh, taking 
uh, basically taking Philippians in the, the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, it just doesn't seem to fit. So um, perhaps someday we'll, we'll be able to lock this down more. Maybe archaeology will uncover some things related to Clement, and who knows? Maybe we'll get to heaven and find out that it really was the same Clement. But um, the odds are highly against it. And I don't know that it really matters anyway. Uh, if, if it is the same Clement, does it impact this passage? Not, not in the slightest. So um, I think we can let it go at that. But whoever he was, he was somebody special to Yodi and Seneki, and that's the key. That the remembrance of Clement is going to be some kind of a memory, it's going to be some kind of an influence that's going to help Zizigus uh, to yoke these two women together. Because they have a past, they have a track record. They have been fellow strugglers. They shared my gospel struggle. And they were partakers in that. They were fully on board back in the day. And that, that ought to get our attention too. If you're, if you're resting on your laurels or if somehow you're banking on whatever it is in your past, the, the Philippians says forget what lies behind. Reach forward to what lies ahead. And, uh, and these women, if they think it's, it's the past of what they've already done that's going to count, they need to think again and reach forward to what lies ahead. That's the, uh, the whole attitude of uh, as many as you as are perfect should be uh, pressing on towards that goal. So uh, those are the issues there. Now, this is Paul's only reference to the book of life. And this is where we ran out of time on Sunday. This is Paul's only reference to the book of life. It's a book that has a lot of reference in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, in Revelation, in the New Testament. It gets uh, some mention uh, in uh, Luke and in Hebrews. But this is the only place anywhere in the Pauline literature uh, to have this mentioned. So let's deal with it here. Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And he goes back from the us to the my again. I find that extraordinary when he says to the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And uh, to me, there's an indication here that tells us that Clement's not alive anymore. Clement has departed. These other fellow workers have departed. They are written in the book of life. All right, so um, have you ever studied the book of life? Do you know some of the issues and the struggles there related to that? All right, so tonight might be a first. All right, well, let's look at it. Let's start with Exodus. Let's start with Exodus 32. And, and there are real questions that remain. We don't say that we have all the answers on it, um, but I think we can harmonize all the relevant passages well enough to ask ourselves um, which uh, we're talking about. You know what? I'm just changing my mind. Let's going to start with Revelation 21. <laughs> Let's go to the end first so we can see the end and then back up and see the beginning. All right, so Revelation 20 and 21. In chapter 21, of course, we have the new heavens and the new earth, and we're told repeatedly that no unbeliever ever enters the, uh, the new earth. Um, we have this marvelous city of the heavenly Jerusalem here that's recorded on the new earth in Revelation 21, and it descends out of heaven I think it's an open question as far as whether it actually lands on the, on the ground or not, but it does descend out of heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, we're told in verse 10. And then you have the foundation stones, the gates, the dimensions, all of the description here is, is extraordinary. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles high. 
And we're told in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. It's a big difference because millennial Jerusalem has a temple, but this Jerusalem does not. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So there still will be nations on the new earth. For a thousand generations there will be nations. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that's the most complete title we have and it's the last one that's mentioned in the Bible in Revelation 21-27. So sometimes it's called the book of life, sometimes it's just called your book, uh, but the, the, the longest title is called the Lamb's book of life. Now go back a chapter to chapter 20, we'll work our way backwards for a moment. And what we want to pay attention to is the, the single book and the plural books. If you want to think of it as an encyclopedia set on the one hand and then a single volume on the other hand, that's, uh, that's a useful way to consider it. And uh, at the great white throne judgment, we're told, these books all get opened. So um, quick outline on Revelation chapter 20, it's the, the millennium, it's the binding of Satan, the thousand years, all these things. At the end of the millennium is the final rebellion called the Gog-Magog Rebellion in, in verse 8. And when all of that is destroyed then, we can pick up the reading here in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And so if we have the sequence down, we have the church age, ends with the rapture, followed by the tribulation, ends with the second advent, followed by the millennium, ends with uh, the Gog-Magog rebellion, and then the destruction of the heavens and the earth. That's the order, that's the sequence. And when the great white throne is convened, look where it's convened. It's convened nowhere. Because by the time the great white throne is convened, the physical universe has departed. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Now there's a new one on the way, the new one we'll see uh, comes in chapter 21, where I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. So I think a straightforward natural reading of these verses indicates that we have the destruction of the heavens and the earth, and we have the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, but in between, after the old has been destroyed and before the new arrives, we have the great white throne in between, see? And is that hard to imagine? Is that hard to visualize? Hard to imagine, well, what does a throne sit on if there's nothing to sit on, right? These people that stand, what do they stand on if there's no heavens and no earth? Well, we just read it for what it says. And so no place was found for them. Literally, no place. So here we finally reached utopia, right? Utopia means no place. All right, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Now keep in mind, that's plural books. We don't know the number, but it's more than one. It's plural. It's a whole set of books. All right? And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So if you follow that, there's a whole set of books, and those books record deeds. 
Whereas the book of life records names, the names of those written in the book of life. And so we have books plural and then an additional book was opened that doesn't get lumped in with all that other set. You know, it's like you got a set of 300 encyclopedias and then this one doesn't become 301. It's, it's still just a separate standalone volume that's opened at the same time the other ones are open, but it's not related to those other books. And so this is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And this references their judgment. This references God's wrath and the punishment and the consequences that they will experience in the lake of fire for all eternity. It does not determine, of course, whether they're saved or they're lost. That's the other book, which we see uh, here as well. Verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in, notice, not, not that whole set of books, not the books plural, not the books of their, of their deeds whereby they are judged, the only criteria for, for salvation, the only criteria that expels them into the lake of fire is the book of life. And so if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so uh, as far as our eternal life is concerned, if your name is in the book of life, you have it. And, and we all do because we're believers in Jesus Christ. But for the unbeliever, their name is not in the book of life, and so they are thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. And it has nothing to do with their deeds. All right, we want to be clear on that. So then I guess the remaining questions as it pertains to the book of life uh, are... That's kind of the, the simple approach. And then there's some additional aspects we can glean because there's a couple of places where it talks about blotting out a name and, uh, and not blotting out a name as being a promise. And then just even using the verb blotted in the same verse as book of life makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to read the word blotted in a verse that has to do with the book of life. We say, wait a minute, that's that doesn't sound right because we can't lose our salvation. So how would our name be blotted out? And how do, these, uh, how do these things work? So again, working our way backwards um, to 17.8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You want to know when that book of life got written? Right there. Before the foundation of the world. This is part of God's divine decrees. This is part of God's foreknowledge. In knowing. In knowing. And so uh, he wasn't sitting up there in heaven waiting around for, you know, 1973 so that Bob Bolander could get saved. Or I guess I was, I was called Bobby back in those days. And so that... Uh, uh, Bobby Bolander got saved in 1973, and so he, he then could finally d- get around to writing my name in the book of life. No. My name was in the book of life. Your name was in the book of life. All of our names were in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And that I find to be significant. So they will wonder when they will see the beast, what his end and is, uh, was, and is not, and will come. Anyway, so there's 
the reference there in 17.8. Back up a little bit more to 13.8. This is kind of fun. We should do it backwards more often. All right, 13.8. Now this one grammatically actually is debatable. So it's not as solid as 17.8, but we can still look at it. Um, we have the uh, the rise of the beast here. This is a, a great chapter to see Antichrist and false prophet and the dragon and all of the worship and everyone just loves the uh, <laughs> all of these tribulational citizens are just loving the dragon and, and singing his praises. Um, but in the in the process here, it says in verse seven, it was also given to him to make war with the saints to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. If you think the world's a mess now, just wait. When when God the Father just gives the whole planet over to Satan and his his plan and program. And uh, the whole world's going to be amazed. You can see the worship there in verse 3. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who was able to wage war with him? And uh, yeah, they're just, they're just loving it here in the tribulation. Well, anyway, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. He becomes the center of global worship. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Okay? Now, on the surface, that looks like it's in great agreement with, uh, with what we just read in Revelation 17.8. And there's actually a manuscript issue here, and there's a question related to this. And I think it's probably better to take that phrase from the foundation of the world, and it actually ought to be linked to the Lamb who has been slain. And so, um, whose name has not been written in the book of life, of the uh, the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. I think that's the better way to handle that. Okay, Either way though, we don't need this verse because we have 17.8. In 17.8 it's clear that the book of life was written before the foundation of the world. So does that make sense? This verse I don't think says that. I think this verse says that the lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. Again, it's a part of God's divine decrees. It's part of God's plan. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed to it. They were going to create angels and humans with volition, that uh, volition would be exercised in a negative way, and, uh, and that this fallen world would need a Savior. And uh, Jesus Christ agreed to be the Savior. And so then God wrote the names in the book of life, and Jesus went forth to do the work. And uh, that's what we see from before the foundation of the world. How powerful is that when it comes right down to it? All right. And then Revelation 3, 5 is what I spoke of. It's because it's a verse that has the blotting out. And, uh, and it does say, erase, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now on one level we read that and we say, well, no brainer. Of course he won't erase our name from the book of life. But why mention it? <laughs> why mention it here? And it gets mentioned here because of some Old Testament parallels and some things that we'll see shortly now that we're going to stop going backwards and we're going to go forwards now through the Old Testament. But the fact that the uh, the statement is made will not blot his name out, it actually opens up more questions for us. It says, well, 
why would you mention that? Are there names that you blot out? If, if, if he never blots out any names, then it makes no sense to mention blotting out a name. But if he does blot out names, what names does he blot out? That's, that's the real question. Any thoughts on that? We're small enough tonight, we can do some interaction. <laughs> well, how about this? Of course, he doesn't blot out any believer's name because they're, they're believers. They're saved, they have eternal life, they have eternal security, they can't lose their salvation. But what if before the foundation of the world he wrote down the name of every human being that would ever live? Every human being that would ever live. Because he desires for none to perish but for all to receive eternal life. He desires for everybody to be saved. And then, sadly, as each unbeliever dies without accepting the gospel, on that occasion and that occasion only, does God then blot out the name of the unbeliever who just perished. He blots out their name because they died without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. He, they died without being saved. They were carried away to Hades. And then upon their arrival in Hades, he blots out their name from the book of life. Yes, sir. I think so. I believe so. I think that's an inference that we can draw. Admittedly, it's not an explicit statement, but it is an inference. And so it's more implicit than explicit. And, uh, but I think it's a natural understanding of, of why the phrase gets used the way that it does. We'll see some more in the Old Testament too as it relates to that. All right. So, um, are we ready to go forward yet? I guess there's only two more in the New Testament. <laughs> so let's keep going backwards. Let's go with uh, Hebrews 12.23. And uh, in contrast with Mount Zion, Israel stood at the foot of Mount Zion and they sent Moses up to the top while they stayed off the mountain at the bottom, terrified, terrified of touching it, even letting one of their animals touch it. And uh, what, a, what a fearsome thing. But we haven't come to that mountain. That's not us. We're the church. We're not Israel. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Oh, hearing the voice of God, they're just terrified. They said, Moses, you go. <laughs> just come back and tell us what he said. For they could not even bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Nope, that's not us. You have come to Mount Zion. This is the heavenly Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and we're there already. Positionally, that's, this is our home. This is where we are. We are uh, setting our mind on the things above. We've come to this already. Um, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and to the church of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and we are His church. And uh, who are enrolled in heaven. And when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, because I'm already there. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of all the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And so in any event, the expression enrolled in heaven, that's the, the, the key expression there. And that's an expression that we accept as being connected to the Lamb's book of life. Okay, Even though it doesn't have the word book, it doesn't have the word life, it doesn't have the word lamb. <laughs> All right, But it does say enrolled in heaven. So I conclude and many others conclude that that's what we're talking about here because it's the only book, it's the only book that records the eternal life that's in Christ. All right. Finally then Luke 10:20, the last of our backwards directional New Testament references. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20. So he's sending out his disciples. He's got 70 of them. He's sending them out two by two. Remember the 70 is not the 12. It's, it's a larger group. But no, it's different than the 12. Okay, And we talked about them in the Life of Christ series. Uh, and the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're going, wow, this is pretty cool. It's good to be a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, just wait. Okay, The, the church is even greater. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. You know, Jesus Christ is, uh, of course, an Old Testament prophet and he's talking to disciples, but these, these 70 disciples are going to survive Christ. He's going to go to heaven. They're going to enter into the church. And the power that the church is given we become the first stewardship to have armor, the first stewardship to have spiritual weapons at our disposal to struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and powers. And uh, the 70 and the 12 and others that Jesus traveled with, they had this kind of power already as a, as a preview that they had during Christ's first advent. He goes on to say, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't be bedazzled by the gee whiz of, of uh, you know, your charismatic giftedness here. <laughs> he said, don't be all, you know, amazed that, hey, you can, you can order the demons around. Do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Your names are recorded in heaven. Okay? And so... We see it there. And it's curious to me. I joked a little bit earlier that when I got saved, my name was Bobby. Now my name is Bob. I hope it counts when I get there. You know, but the thing is, what name did he write down anyway? Did he write down my new name? Because I've got a new name written down in glory. We all do. And so uh, whatever we used to be known by here on earth, who cares? The new name is what we're going to be known by with our Father when we get to heaven. So here Jesus mentions it, Luke 10, 20, your names are recorded in heaven. Again, it doesn't have the phrase book of life. It doesn't have the phrase lamb's book of life. But clearly I don't see any issue why we, we shouldn't think of this in those terms, that this is a reference to the book of life, even if he doesn't use the vocabulary. The names are recorded in heaven. And that's uh, the book that we see open by the time we get to the, the great white throne judgment. Okay, so now having gone backwards through the Old Testament, let's go to Exodus 32 and we'll work our way forward now through the, uh, the Old Testament. Exodus 32. 
And uh, here we are at Mount Sinai. The people are at the bottom. Moses has gone up to the mountain. And uh, while he's away for 40 days and 40 nights, they turn to idolatry. And uh, they beg, uh, they want Aaron to make themselves a, an idol, and he does. And uh, Moses comes down and sees it and smashes the tablets. So this is what we have here. We get down to verse uh, 30. On the next day Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. This is his prayer to the Lord. Forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. And this is significant because it is the first reference to this book anywhere in the Bible. God's book that he's written, it's in heaven, it's not the tablets, it's his book in heaven. God himself has written it, and uh, Moses invites God to, uh, to blot out his own name if, uh, if he's not going to forgive Israel. How powerful is that? You know, you talk about someone that's willing to die spiritually to redeem his people. Uh, does that sound familiar? Do you know anybody else that died spiritually to redeem his people? And so here's Moses uh, as a kinsman redeemer who uh, has already brought an earthly people out of, you know, through the Red Sea and out of earthly slavery. Now he's interceding before the Lord uh, in, in an atonement application, an atonement prayer. So if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. And so the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now is that an answer or is that a non-answer? And is that a non-answer that actually conveys a tremendous truth? Because we talk about blotting out and we talk about our salvation being secure. So he's not blotting out believers. Who's he blotting out? Well as he says here, whoever has sinned against me. And so if the wages of sin is death, if uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if, if those things are all true, and if he wrote everybody's name down in the book of life before the foundation of the world, well then now it, it starts to make sense, doesn't it? Now I think it makes sense that the unbeliever who dies in his sin is the one whose name gets blotted out. He goes to hell and his name gets blotted out so that when he comes out of hell and stands at the great white throne, the name won't be there in the book of life. All right. Question. As long as he's physically alive, his name is still there because God desires for none to perish. And I think the fact that all the names were there originally allows for Jesus Christ to be the unlimited atonement for the entire human race because every name was then included in, in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. That's right. So. The Lord said, again, verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. All right, that's uh, Exodus then. How about Psalms? Psalm 40. And you know, for something as significant as that, you think it would get mentioned more in uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but that's all we got right there is Exodus 32. 
until we get to the life of David. 400 years after Moses comes David. And uh, Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Here's a fun one. It is a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Boy, there's a deep concept right there. Was David writing that or was Jesus writing that? What is this? This is, uh, this is something. All right. Psalm 40, verse 4, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. That's a great Old Testament salvation verse right there. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. You know, how do we count all of God's blessings? How do we, uh, you know, if, if all the ocean was made of ink and all the sky was a scroll and, and if every stalk was a quill and every man was a scribe, he couldn't possibly tell the whole story. Verse 6, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Hebrews translates this as a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And so now here's something quite interesting about God's book. And and it's always spoken of as the singular. It was in the singular in in Exodus. It's in the singular here. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. So I accept this also as a reference to the Lamb's Book of Life, which not only includes all the names of the saved, the lost get blotted out, and besides all the names, what else does it describe? It describes that Jesus Christ Himself will be the faithful one that provides for this salvation. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. And so Jesus Christ as our substitute, Jesus Christ as the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because this was a part of the plan from the, from the very beginning. It's uh, pretty amazing. And here's David writing about this and uh, describing it here in Psalm 40. How about Psalm uh, 56? Psalm 56, that Psalm 40, by the way, gets quoted in Hebrews over and over and over again. Behold, I come to do your will. All right, Psalm 56 and verse 8. Another uh, Davidic psalm. This is when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He says in verse 8, You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Are they not in your book? Again, singular book, not plural. Singular book. And uh, David has confidence here that God's the best record keeper and he's got a handle on all of this. Are they not in your book? So, yeah, 
happy to be saved, sure. But what else is in that book beyond my name and my status as a believer? How about my tears, my wanderings, my hardships? Those are in there too. Why? Because that's what produces the glory for Jesus Christ. That's what produces our growth and our maturity and our blessings. So, well, I don't like the tears. I don't like the wanderings. I don't like the struggle. Well, you like your name being written in the book of life? It's the same book. So uh, I kind of like it, even if it's not pleasant to go through in terms of our experience. Psalm 69 and verse 28. There is um, a lot here in Psalm 69. It speaks of betrayal. It speaks of uh, uh, traitors, those who hate me without cause. This is Davidic, but it's so much of Jesus. In verse 8, I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For uh, Was that David or was that Jesus? Okay, Both. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus cleansed the temple. And um, all of the uh, attacks. All right. We get down to verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, fulfilled by Jesus Christ on the cross. So many of these things. You get down to uh, verse, uh, talking about his enemy here. Uh, Enemies, plural. Pour out your indignation on them. May your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. They tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. And this is where it departs, because I believe David prayed these imprecatory prayers in his capacity, uh, and Jesus didn't do this. Jesus wouldn't let himself do this. Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this is a marked departure where Jesus had the victory and I think David reflected a lot of humanity in his uh, imprecatory prayers for these guys. But David asks, add iniquity to their iniquity and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. That's David's request. He said, God, kill them. Kill them now, kill them quick, kill them before they can get saved. <laughs> I would hate it if they lived long enough to get saved. That's David's view. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But it is an explicit reference to book of life. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And so in some of these other ones, we're making some assumptions. I think we're making fair assumptions. Um, I don't have any issues seeing the Lamb's book of life in every single one of these passages we're looking at here tonight. But it's very explicit in Psalm 69, 28. All right. Verse uh, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. It's a chapter we go to for omnipresence. It's a chapter we go to for omniscience. It's a chapter we go to for uh, a lot of things. Psalm 139. It's a good verse uh, for uh, life in the womb. At uh, conception here, for you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. 
I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Um, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. You know, forget the, the womb of his mother. The depths of the earth. When he gathered the dust and made Adam, who else did he make? All of us. We were all in Adam when he formed that dust into a body and breathed life, the breath of lives into Adam. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Before we ever arrive at day one, God wrote his book before the foundation of the world. And our names are in that book, including our struggles and our sorrows and our everything. The divine destiny, the divine decree that God has bestowed upon each one of us. And it gets written right here. So that's Psalm 139 and verse 16. Daniel. Daniel 12. Now what's curious here is we have a chapter that really begins in chapter 10 and then it spans chapter 11 and then it crosses into chapter 12. And in the process of this there's a reference in chapter 10 and verse 21 to the writing of truth. I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. And I've speculated this possibly being like an angelic Bible, being information that angels had access to. Gabriel was well familiar with this written information. And he says, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And so Michael and Gabriel were just, you know, like back-to-back gunslingers, and it was them against all the, the forces of Satan in, uh, in Persia or in uh, Babylon, in any event. Then we get the content that's revealed here in chapter 11, and then the promise of millennial blessings. And so by the time Daniel chapter 11 comes to a close, things look pretty grim. (laughs) Israel is surrounded, the enemies are all over the place, they're hated, the king of the north and the king of the south are coming after them, and, uh, and things are terrible. And uh, as Antichrist goes forward here, it says, uh, uh, let's see, verse 41, he, this is Antichrist, will enter, this is 1141, if I've lost you, Daniel 1141, Antichrist will enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Adam, I'm sorry, Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. And so they're on his side. They're following with him. His uh, lackeys, his, his dogs, as you were, following at his heels. But then it says, rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. Just when he's on the verge of victory and Antichrist thinks everything is going his way, All of a sudden, rumors from the east and the north will disturb him. And uh, the book of Daniel doesn't tell us what these are, but Revelation does. There's 200 million soldiers coming from from China, coming from the east, demon-possessed soldiers uh, that are filled with the, the demons out of the abyss. So he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. 
and he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And this is, uh, of course, as he prepares his troops for, to, for the uh, battle of Armageddon. He sees the uh, sign of the Son of Man appear in the sky and he, this is his last chance. He has to stop second advent. Good luck with that. <laughs> Here comes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's not virgin born and humble in a manger. He's, he's coming to conquer and uh, it's going to be a ferocious battle. So at that time, at that time, Michael, the great prince, this is the archangel Michael, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So in all of human history, this is unique. There is nothing like the great tribulation of Israel. And at that time, your people, notice, everyone who is found written in the book will be saved or will be rescued. And so here it is again, this mention of the Lamb's book of life. You know, what good does it to survive the tribulation if you're an unbeliever? You're not going to get into the millennium anyway. The rescue is for the believers. All Israel will be saved because all unbelieving Israel will be killed and sent to hell. All right. So as we look through all of these references in the book of life, I think we can put them together on an inductive basis. I think we can study the totality of these things. I think the, the references to blotting out are undeniable. Uh, it doesn't help us any if we just pretend they're not there. That doesn't serve any purpose. They are there, and they're there plenty of times, and they're there in a way that tells us it's got to be significant of something. Somebody's getting their names blotted out, but it's just not us getting our names blotted out because we have eternal security in Christ. So if it's not our names being blotted out, whose names are getting blotted out? Got to be somebody's names. Well, the Lord told Moses way back in Exodus 32, it's those who sin against me. It's the wages of sin is death. And so the whole uh, having your name blotted out in the book of life means that you are still subject to the wages of sin is death because you didn't accept the offer that was made in your place. All right, so that's the, uh, the aspect there. And comprehensive, from Moses to David to Daniel to Jesus to um, John in Revelation. We've got a full spectrum of prophetic revelation that, that highlights this amazing book. Something in heaven, something God Himself wrote that includes our names as, as, uh, in terms of our salvation status, but also includes the number of our days, it includes the, uh, the hardships and the difficulties we're going to go through, it includes our afflictions and our testings. All of that's written down. He's in charge of all of it. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. To me, that allows me to relax, allows me to faith rest, allows me to say, okay, well, I wasn't expecting this, but God was. It's a part of His plan. And, uh, and like I say, if I don't like it, I want to complain, well, it's in this very same book that has my eternal life. It's in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm not going to complain about that, am I? I'm happy to be saved. And so if I'm going to accept that, I've got to accept the whole book. That's all, uh, that's all there in God's book. All right. Now, why does Paul not mention it more? Why is uh, Paul really not deal with the Lamb's Book of Life on any extended basis? Um, I don't know if we can answer that. But the fact that he puts it here, he mentions it here, he doesn't mention it in Romans or Corinthians or Thessalonica or anything else. He mentions it here. 
And I don't think that's an accident. I think that it's significant because just like he spoke about our citizenship is in heaven, I believe that he spoke to that heavenly logbook as another reminder. So significant here is yet another reminder that our citizenship is in heaven no matter what names are listed in the Roman colony's civic registry. Talking to Roman citizens, writing a letter to Roman citizens, mentioning that their citizenship is in heaven is powerful, mentioning that their names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life would be just as powerful because it stands as a contrast to the secular roles, to the political roles, to the Roman colony's civic registry. Something that they would in earthly terms be very proud of. They would love to have their names written down as Roman citizens in the, in the colony of Philippi. And, uh, and Paul tells me, you know what, there's a better book than that. <laughs> there's a much better book than that. Your names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. And so uh, we deal with it like that. All right. I think uh, on Sunday, if you were here, I mentioned the, the, the meticulous record keeping that the Romans had, not only to record in terms of a census, you think about it now, we're still fighting about censuses today in terms of what questions get asked, you know, what's your name, where do you live, who lives in your house, you know, how many family members do you have. They want to have an accurate head count because this is how they determine the, the representation, this is how they determine um, in terms of uh, our government and, and that. And then the audacity to ask about citizenship, some people are complaining. Oh no, you can't ask about citizenship. Well, why not? Because if we're, if we're counting the number of, of citizens uh, as a part of who's represented, the representatives represent the citizens or the government of the people, not some other government's people, but our people and, uh, and aspects there. Well, the Romans, not only did they count citizenship, but they also counted economic status and they counted free versus slave status and they counted your, uh, your tax bracket, if you were. Which of the five economic divisions did you fall into? Because if you didn't have, and I think it's a million sesterii a year income, you didn't qualify to be a senator, even if you did last year, even if you did the year before. And uh, your family could be long-standing members of the Senate and, uh, and lose that standing if your family fortune fell below the, the threshold there that uh, qualified to be a senator. And if you didn't qualify to be a senator, then the next rank down were called the equestrians, or they were called the knights and they were the step below the senators, and then there were three more levels below that. When you got to the very bottom level of just basic citizen, you were really just one step above a slave. You were, uh, you were that close to being considered impoverished or destitute at that point. So they had a different boundary for that too. If, uh, if you could not support a single slave, you were considered destitute. Uh, as long as you could support one slave, then you were, you were solvent and you, uh, you had voting privileges and, and standing as a, uh, as a Roman citizen. Anyway, so this would, uh, would have been a big deal to the believers in Philippi and I think Paul's reference to the book of life, just like his reference to uh, citizenship in heaven was pointed directly at the Philippian pride in their earthly, earthly Roman citizenship. All right. So Sunday when we come back, we will go past this verse and we'll be ready then for the seven imperatives of uh, four through nine. Seven imperatives provide a practical how-to recipe for standing firm in the Lord. He told him to stand firm in the Lord. Now he's going to spell out steps to do that, including a prayer life, including an attitude of rejoicing. 
And uh, Thanksgiving weekend's a pretty good weekend to touch upon that because that's what it's about. Thanksgiving and praise is, uh, is all due to the grace of God. So Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. Thank you, Father, for providing the time to get through this material tonight, Father. We had uh, no uh, Q&A, so we had extra time to go through these uh, Book of Life references, and, uh, and I thank you for the, the blessings of doing that. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding and help us chew on these things that we've looked at, help us to consider um, the full uh, impact and the full meaning of these things. Father, uh, we also want to thank you as our nation has set aside tomorrow to be a national day of Thanksgiving. We acknowledge that uh, our inalienable rights, our blessings come from you, that uh, we are not recipients of government blessing, we are recipients of your blessing. And we uh, give you the, the praise and the glory, Father, because it's all yours. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.